Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 158 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and really delighted to have on today for the second time uh, Richard Millman of the Richard Millman uh, the Millman Experience, also of iMask. He's a partner in the iMask uh, that is out there right now, and he's, uh, I believe, involved with the North American distribution of iMask. And uh, we have a really great chat. It's a straight, uh, you know, a lot of straight talk about the implications of Corona on all aspects of the game, the pro squash, the U.S. varsity scene, which is uh, uh, taking a bit of a hit these days as well, and also in squash in general, and it's a straight talk. Richard's been uh, around the block a few times, a former pro himself, former U.S. national team uh, coach, uh, head coach at Cornell, along with his wife, Pat, and um, plenty here uh, of uh, really good uh, conversation in terms of the implications of Corona on all aspects of the game. We also talk about his eye mask and how he feels, and I think a lot of people feel it's the best option out there in terms of protecting yourself from Corona whilst playing squash. Not only that, uh, in terms of eye protection as well, as we know, um, Mustafa Asal, uh, the up-and-coming uh, Egyptian talent, uh, has used the eye mask for a few years now. And we also get to talking uh, about World Squash Day, which he's actively involved with. He's working with Alan Thatcher at Squash Mad. Uh, Alan Thatcher, of course, uh, uh, the man behind uh, World Squash Day, and that's upcoming on October 10th of this year. And we talk about what that means and how you and your club can get involved. So, uh, Richard Millman today on episode one. 58. Now, before we get started, I just want to talk about our great sponsor, Active Scout, who's working its way towards uh, uh, rolling out uh, their app, and that should be coming up in the next few weeks. And we're going to have Rob Eberhardt on the podcast to tell us more about that and how clubs might retain and then build upon uh, their membership, which is a cre- uh, critical thing uh, at this moment, at this point in time. So I'm excited to uh, to download the Active Scout uh, app. My Myself and review it for you here on the podcast along with uh, Rob Eberhardt. Now, you've heard me talking about the app, so hold off on downloading it until we have Rob on and until we do our exclusive review here on the podcast. So, But uh, in the meantime, if you're looking for more information, feel free to visit their website at www.activescout.com. That's Active Scout without the E. And without further ado, episode 158 with the man behind the eye mask and the Millman experience, Richard Millman. Dalhousie, it's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I, I know the name. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's where Neil Harvey lives, actually. Right. Yeah, I was up there um, not so long ago. I was coaching down the road from there uh, in... Where New is it? Yeah, that's right. In Moncton, in the, the, at the nice new facility they have, yeah. Yeah, they got very fortunate, I guess, if after the Canada Games left them some courts behind. Um, yeah. And they've got uh, a nice facility in, in that old ice hockey rink. Um, it's just difficult, I think, to run a f- uh, sort of full-scale, full-time program there. They can't seem to find anybody who can uh, sort of come in and make a living um, which is a shame, which is why they had me come up. They did, uh, actually. They did have uh, Chris Hanaberry there for for two years, I think, the young guy. He's coaching. Yeah, I uh, think they really liked him. I think I yeah. think they really enjoyed having him there, but I just don't think that he felt that he could make a living. 
Yeah, that was uh, that's that. Yeah, my uh, uh, oldest daughter's there in Canada, and I'm here with my youngest daughter. Uh, she's starting school in a couple of weeks, and I my staycation is over at the end of this week, Richard. So back <laughs> to work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how about you? How's everything with uh, with you, your family, and things in in Georgia? I guess. Yeah, well, it's it's a bit of a scary time in Georgia. Um, the governor here opened up. Um, he was the first to open up. And, um, you know, because of the political situation, um, right uh, sort of wing Trump supporters were very much uh, of the opinion that um, wearing a mask was a political statement early on. And as a consequence, a lot of people got sick that shouldn't have got sick. Um, and Trump uh, has tried to push the schools to open. And again, a lot of his supporters uh, in the education system followed through and pushed the schools to open. And as a consequence, a lot of people have got sick. Teachers are very, very frightened. Um, you know, some schools have... Uh, split it so that there's, um, you know, only a certain number of each class going in, but some schools have forced their kids and staff to come back and yeah. the, the numbers are going up and people are dying and it's, it's pretty frightening yeah. time. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, I'm following quite a bit, obviously we all are, but uh, yeah, it seems like, uh, I mean, the U S and, and parts of Europe are really getting hit hard uh, by this and, and other parts of the world uh, seem to be less so. So, yeah. and, and it seems pretty clear to me, and it's only a personal opinion, that if we could have shut down and um, implemented the mask uh, restriction really, really early on, that we could have returned the economy to a much healthier state earlier on with far less uh, percentage uh, infection rates. Yeah. But what, you know, this is a country where personal freedoms are, you know, championed. And at the same time, there's a lot of confusion as to where the line between personal freedom and damage to the community uh, yeah. is to be found. Yeah, and I guess um, you need the right type of leadership too, don't you? I mean, you want you want someone who's out there and has 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 the people in his heart. And uh, the guy in charge there right now, I hate. I mean, I don't really talk a lot of politics, but I, I, I uh, you know, he's just not the right person for the job under these circumstances. He might. I mean, the economy seemed to be going going pretty well, uh, but uh, you know, there's more than you know being a president. Uh, to being present than uh, just the economy, right? I just don't think he has the capacity to uh, be a, a, a national leader. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, truth be told, he's probably scared out of his mind and he's, he's hiding because he doesn't know what to do. Um, yeah. And then he's, you know, he, he has this ability to sell, um, uh, sell himself, and so he's trying to put spin on everything. But anyway, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, the fact of the matter is that here in the United States, um, there is 
certainly a lot of concern and confusion about how to go back to play squash. And I think in a number of the countries in the world, I, I notice mm -hmm. that in England, the um, advice from the English Squash Rackets Association um, or England Squash uh, as to the protocol uh, to go back to play didn't uh, mention masks at all. Right. Didn't mention um, face masks or face shields or anything at all. No. And just recently there's been um, quite a lot of uh, discussion in, in the English Twitter sphere about people going back to play squash following the protocols of England squash, right. but then going into the bar and socializing just like nothing had ever happened before. Yeah. 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 So no, yeah. there's only one outcome to that kind of behavior, you know, and it's going to be bad um, sooner or later. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing, but you know, people that sort of are pandemic deniers or virus deniers. I mean, like you can't argue with a bug that kills people. It's plain and simple. Yeah. Um, if yeah, you yeah, can I mean, get they're, the they're, rates down. Yeah. It's not a myth. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of death out there. So, and, and squash is one of the, obviously a sport where it's, you know, bound to happen unless you take the necessary, precautions and uh yeah i mean at my club uh, i've been trying to get the management and they're, they're they don't have rules right and i'm sort of like the de facto guy when it comes it's just at a hotel so uh, yeah. sort of de facto person when it comes to all things squash there they kind of come to me what are the rules what's a let all this uh, uh stuff right. so when it comes to um this covid stuff i'm really trying to push them to to you know, to be to err on the side of caution, but yes. uh, it's not really working. You know, uh, I mean, I can't be there all day and I don't play every day. I play twice a week, maybe two, three times a week now, but uh, uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't seem to, and whenever I go in there, they're, you know, either there, some people wear masks, some people don't. Uh, there's no sort of rules anywhere. Uh, 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 so it's a bit disappointing. And I think, this might be just sort of what's going on here and there at other facilities as well. There's no sort of method uh, to a lot of all, uh, this across the board, I think. I thought the Squash England rules, though, I mean, that what they put out in terms of, you know, uh, social distancing and th uh, distancing on court in the yeah. you know, they had quite a few good videos out there. I thought that was fairly comprehensive, though. Uh, to be yeah, fair. and, you know, yeah. you know, just a couple of months prior to that coming out, you know, I had been working with us squash on certain kinds of games that, you know, could work like playing sides, playing front and back and yeah. this kind of stuff. But, you know, I think I was dreaming to be honest, Jerry, yeah. I, I think I was dreaming that people would comply and at the end that, of the that's day, the whole thing. Once you get on, once you get on court, you play these games, and then suddenly someone says, "Okay, let's let's have a game, let's have a normal game." That's and that's just bound to happen. I'd yeah, say yeah. more so, often than not. I mean, the good news, in some regards, 
not right now, but in some regards, is that we know that in 1915, 16, 17, there was plenty of squash being played. Right. And we know in 1920, 21, 22, there was plenty of squash being played. Mm-hmm. So a hell of a lot more people than have currently died, died in 1918, 19. The infectiousness was perhaps even more than right now. And the uh, capacity to medically mitigate the disease was far less. And yet the sport came back. But I think the fact of the matter is that, you know, unless people comply with the mitigation protocols, um, we're going to have two years out of the game. Um, I'm not sure that the current uh, financial status of the game is able to cope with two years of um, no financial uh, supply. Um, You know, in, in the 19... 15, 16, 17, 20, 21, 22 era, squash generally was not reliant upon income. It was a sport played in entities and and, in uh, institutions that did not rely upon income from the sport to be able to foster the sport. Um, And then in the 1970s, I think you and I may have discussed this before, somebody had the idea that you could have a commercial squash club, which seemed like a good idea. And everybody got very excited. And, you know, it was a great short sport, not like soccer or cricket or baseball or, or ice hockey that didn't take two hours. You could play it in 40 minutes and play build a 40 minutes up and work up a, a thirst and, and head up to the bar and have right. a social life. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, as the economies of the world have become more and more about squeezing dollars per square foot. Um, those institutions that tried to make squash a financial proposition, you know, for, for commercial gain have really found it very, very difficult. In fact, so many people that got excited about squash in the sort of mid seventies to, you know, mid to late eighties, um, got addicted to the idea that they could have their own squash club and that they could make money from squash. And it has not proven to be so. It just doesn't work as a financial proposition. And now two years of no income for those kinds of institution, I I think is going to kill them off. Um, It may end up in sorry richard you say two years i'm just wondering where uh where that like what do you mean by by the two years is that is that sort of a forecast for i I don't think the revenue is that's basically that's that's my best guess is that you know starting from um last march when people really had to start shutting down end of march really it was I lost all of my business from the end of March. I, I had um, clinics and seminars booked all over the place for April, May, 
uh, and camps in June. Um, and there are some people that are still doing bits and bobs. My friend, Eddie Charlton, uh, in Toledo, Ohio, he's run some very successful camps. Um, but overall squash has been shut down. Um, and certainly the commercial clubs, I don't think are functioning. If you talk to Alan Thatcher there, I mean, more and more clubs being shut down simply just can't make it financially. And if there is any kind of second and third spike to the disease in October, November, which I suspect will go through until February, um, the Northern hemisphere is not going to have any kind of, um, you know, financial income from the sport uh, this coming season. And I suspect not much income in the following season, you know, one would hope maybe September, October, November of um, 2021, you might see some kind of return. But I think if you are financially planning, you would have to say, you know, let's, let's expect the worst and hope for the best. And expecting the worst, I think, means you expect there to be two years lost income. Right. So these private facilities uh, are it, it, basically what you're saying is it doesn't look good for the next few years. We're going to have to be reliant upon uh, universities, uh, play, you know, facilities that, that aren't necessarily just reliant upon the squash revenue to survive, right? Right. That's, that's what I think is going to happen. Um, and I, I'm so, sorry for those people that are invested in those places, but I think – you know, you know, well, let's hope have it, a knock. Sorry, sorry. This could have a huge knock on effect at, uh, in the U S I mean, look, look at the, the influx of talent that came over just to, you know, to get into the pro, uh, the coaching game over here. And, uh, you know, especially recently, do you, do you think that's going to, to have a knock on effect in terms of, you know, their, their wherewithal to be able to, to stick it out for two years or? Well, I don't want to be the voice of doom, but mm. yeah, exactly. Let's, yeah. let's look at this on a practical level. Squash in the world to some extent is driven by the engine that is college squash in the United States. Mm. Professionals, come to the United States because there has been a great deal of money available to try and help children become proficient at the game to then get into um, some of the leading college programs. And then when people leave the college programs, they have, you know, typically gone into business, um, but they've populated squash clubs all over the country. Yeah. So in the last three weeks, I believe in talking about sport generally, more than 200 varsity sports programs have been canceled. And, you know, in squash uh, terms, we've seen Brown, Stanford, Stanford, and um, George yeah, Washington yeah. cancelled. So what does that mean 
in terms of the world of squash? Well, if you've got less opportunity for children to um, be recruited and get into varsity squash programs, you've got less opportunity for coaches to make a living coaching. You've got less people infused by the sport that can populate squash clubs. And, you know, it's not come to the point where it's over, but if you had another three, four, five programs canceled, Mm. you're then starting to look at a very difficult situation. You know, accompanying this, we've got two years of very, very low revenue, I suspect, coming up. I mean, maybe increasing revenue in, maybe there'll be some summer camps in the summer of 2021. Almost all of the camps have gone this year. I mean, if you calculated the total lost revenues for summer camps in the United States in squash for 2020, I suspect that you would be well into the six figures. Right. That's how much money's been lost. Right. Um, now what about uh, the varsity program now? I mean, uh, a lot of universities, I know over here where, where I teach, it's uh, 60% in the classroom, 40% online. And we're, we're one of the more sort of open thing, things seem to be out. They want things to be more open here. But um, I know in the U S uh, especially with all the international students and that, that, that also applies to squash in a big way. Are, are, are these schools going to be allowing the, the, the students, the, the players to, uh, to enter? I haven't heard anything uh, really. I, I mean, all I know is the, the, the programs you mentioned, Stanford Brown and George Washington have been canceled. So, uh, but I do know that international students are also at risk. So beyond that, Jerry, um, most of the full sports programs in all of the universities have been cancelled. And you look at Harvard, I don't think Harvard are going to have in-person classes until 2021. Right. Now, if that's the case, um, and, and, you know, that's what I believe, I, may, I stand to be corrected there, but if you've got multiple major universities cancelling in-person uh, tuition, um, the, there's no way they're going to allow uh, varsity squash programs. Right. So, again, I hope, I really hope I'm wrong. Um, so. But I think you've got a really awkward situation. I, I know uh, a good friend of mine was just on a uh, CSA, College Squash Association, call the other day. And they're really trying to show great leadership and um, developing protocols uh, and, you know, making everybody wear, um, you know, a lot of people are buying my face shield. They're, they're making rules about wearing face shields and wearing masks. But I have to believe that that is the most optimistic outlook. And that, uh, as we've said before, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And I, and I have a feeling that we may see uh, a much more um, sporadic uh, 
amount of play than than we all would like. And if that happens again, once again, I think the sport is under threat. And I, and I do think. Well, could isn't it, sorry, isn't it true though that the I mean, could these programs, if they do decide to to run a, a squash season uh, without international players, they they may obviously populate their teams with. Uh, uh, Americans or, or and Canadians, uh, perhaps, uh, and that I mean, they, well, they still go that way. I, you know, I don't think that the issue is the international players, honestly, Jerry. Mm-hmm. I think the issue is the institutions feeling comfortable with human beings in close proximity. Um, you know, with the virus still around. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think it's about the internationals. I think it's about, you know, they're not holding on-campus classes because they're worried about uh, community spread. And if they're not going to hold the classes, then I don't think some of these institutions will will allow athletics of any kind. Yeah. That's my concern. So I mean, I mean, you've been in America long enough to know that uh, these schools say basically the these sports teams pay their bills. <laughs> I mean, uh, football, uh, especially the football team. So if they, if they do allow, let's say they, they have a football season, uh, then that, I mean, they may also decide to have a other sports season. Uh, well, there, I mean, it, it, I mean, as you know, I mean, the, these sports pretty much fun, like it's a million dollar industry in and of itself. Uh, you're right. The problem is that if you listen to the epidemiologists, what they all say is we must avoid indoor situations where people are breathing the same air for prolonged periods of time. Yeah. Well, can you think of another situation in sport that is more like that than squash? Yeah, squash is the, I mean, that, that yeah, poster child for that. That's one. the concern. <laughs> Yes. You know, so, but, you know, there's some very interesting stuff happening and this pandemic may change um, our sport in unexpected ways. I've been talking to Alan Thatcher a lot recently and uh, there's a couple of guys in Canada as well who um, have been sort of discussing um, the idea of bringing squash outside Mm. Obviously, like we just had the PGA this weekend um, and golf really lends itself to social distancing and to, you know, fresh air. (laughs) Right. Well, a great friend of mine who I'm working with a little bit in New York has just built uh, a steel squash court. I've seen that that video online. It it looks magnificent. I'd love to play it. Let's have a game on that, Richard, one of these days. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is I, I am working with some partners on developing a um, rebound net that is like a front wall that you can set up in a street, um, in, a, in, a, in a park, in a ghetto, anywhere you like, um, and that young coaches can coach and play games on. I think we may see a trend of outdoor play of our sport in one form or another as a result of this pandemic, which may 
actually do us a favor because for such a long time, our sport has been sequestered away in, um, you know, secluded private clubs and has been out of the eye of the general public. And one of the things I've been trying to work on for a long time and Alan Thatcher is very keen on doing is bringing the sport outside, not for permanency, but as a method of exposing more people to it so that, you know, if people become addicted. and well, That's like been it. something I think the last time you came on, uh, I, I mentioned the video that you were, you were, you were right. sort of pimping a bunch of uh, these outdoor courts around New York. Was it, I'm not sure if it was New York city. Yeah, yeah. Chris Gordon was involved uh, in that. Right. Yeah. That looks like a lot of fun. And I think we're going to see versions of the sport being played outside for the next year to 18 months which actually may broaden our reach and might help the sport. Also, it might change the way the sport is presented uh, so that it's less um, private club and inside, but more outside and more um, broader cross-section of society. So, you know, I, I don't want to be the voice of doom, as I said, but I think we may evolve in as yet, perhaps not quite perceived. Well, that's, I mean, I talk, uh, I talk about this a lot uh, to other people who write about squash and things like that, but it's one thing that we don't see a lot of in the squat. We have our own media, I guess we don't, because we're not covered basically outside of uh, ourselves. And uh, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, sort of uh, objective uh, look at, at our game. You know, it's more of a, you know, insular, kind of uh, almost everything we read about squash is positive uh, in the media. I mean, you, if you watched uh, the golf this weekend, for example, Brooks Kepka got the crap beat out of him for what, for what he was saying. Right. And, and, yeah. and, you know, that, that, that was across all sports media, you know, ESPN, CBS, they all, you know, gave them hell and, and, th- and that's normal. Whereas in squash, uh, you hardly ever, see anything really negative about anything uh, about the game in print or, you know, sometimes the guys on squash TV though, they can give referees a bit of a hard time, but when it's actually, you know, talking about the, the state of the game or, you know, things like that, we're, we're, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if we have thick skin uh, uh, in order to handle. We have a lot of self-love, Jerry, is what yeah. we have. A lot of self-love, but not much self-criticism, and we yeah. don't expose ourselves very often. And we don't try different stuff, or I don't think... It's not that we don't try different stuff, but we just haven't done it enough. Everything's been too comfortable, hasn't it? You know, we've been yeah. ticking away quite nicely. So in, in some regards, I think the pandemic may help us. You know, on... A, October the 10th this year. Well, we were going to get to that. 10, 10, 20. Right, right. now it's 8, 10, 20. we got two <laughs> months to go. <laughs> yeah. I was, going to, I was going to bring that up later. Richard, can I, can, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I just want to ask you one thing before we go there. Yes, um, absolutely. Now, before, uh, before we go there, and I also want to talk, uh, uh, obviously, World Squash Day and, and a little bit about eye mask and, and the Mil- Milman experience, but... Uh, I did notice during your COVID um, lockdown training, uh, I think it was the other day you, you mentioned, uh, or not the other day, but in a recent video, you mentioned uh, that you were in, you, you, uh, you had an injury. 
And the same thing happened to me, like I, just right at the beginning of the lockdown, I, um, I thought, okay, I'm not going to let this get me down. I'm going to, I'm going to go out and, uh, try to break my 5k, uh, time that I, that I had back when I was 30 years old, something like 21 minutes or whatever it was. And I go out and I run 23 minutes. It was like, it was incredible, right? 23. Uh, but, uh, two days later I couldn't walk. <laughs> <laughs> so my hip went on me or something, right? Yeah. But exactly like you said, though, in your, uh, in your video, I didn't let it keep me down. I just found sort of a, another sort of circuit training routine that allowed me to sort of keep the cardio going. And uh, now the hip's fine and everything, and I'm playing well, and uh, cardio is fantastic. But uh, I think I bit off a little too much there in the beginning. Is that what happened to you uh, uh, back? Uh, I think so. I yeah. think so. You know, um, I, I, of course, you know, I'm 61 years old and I still think I'm 27. Mm. Um, and yes. I, I still expect to go and do the training sessions that I did. Um, although my body lets me know pretty quickly that I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you but, were talking uh, about getting down low there in your videos. I was like, geez getting down low I get, that's you know I can't do that anymore <laughs> yeah I, but I do think it it uh, sort of illuminates um, the importance of flexibility and stretching and mm -hmm. and you know reasonable weight training for your age um, so that you can uh, maintain not particularly strength but but uh, you know stability and there's less chance of joints going pear shaped if you do the, you know, the, the, the sort of kettlebell work and the resistance work and, and the, um, you know, um, multi-joint, um, type of, um, change of direction work yeah. that, um, you know, the modern, um, physical trainers are, teaching these days instead of these single um instead of five thousand court springs right exactly exactly <laughs> and you know you probably saw my wife and i put uh, a couple of pieces of tape on my garage door to represent a tin and you know we did some really good shot in the ghost sessions and we did uh, you know two ball feeds and it's surprising what you can do outside oh, yeah. um and you know, we developed this game um, with the rebound net that we play either against or over the net and round the net. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can do in our sport if we use our imaginations. And if we did it collectively, I think we could get a lot of people playing, interacting at a safe distance. Um, I, I think it's really important to remember, never mind the physical side of things, how many of the world's squash population considered their squash communities to be their greater family and they're missing out on their family in a big, big way. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was just uh, by way of uh, just in case that people listening to this might not know Richard Millman. I know in the U.S. you're you're big. Uh, in in the people who followed the game for years would know who you are. But basically, you came to the um, came to the U.S. in '93, I believe. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. And prior to that, uh, I think you you played professionally in the UK. You were coaching there, and then yeah. um, maybe in order to find a, maybe a, uh, to make ends meet, uh, left yeah. the UK, and uh, eventually right. found yourself coaching at uh, Cornell. So. You know, uh, 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 I mean, and now David Palmer's there. But um, tell us uh, how that a tremendous job, David Palmer. Um, yeah. You know, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say, when I came to Cornell, you know, I was a squash coach. I didn't know anything about Ivy League, and I fell in love with the job because it was about um, the pastoral care of amazing group of human beings, finding out what you could discover outside the world of squash to help those people. And I don't think people always realize when a, a squash pro goes into a college situation that only 30% of the job is squash coaching. Um, a vast proportion of the job is um, both administration and looking out for the needs, the human needs, the, the future needs of his charges. And David Palmer is just doing a wonderful job to create um, a, a, an environment and a community with the alumni and the current students, as well as his undoubted ability as a squash coach. Yeah, definitely. And he, I mean, he always uh, he was always a professional when he was on tour, and you knew that he he would be a, a great coach. He took his uh, his game very seriously, and always uh, uh, had his ducks lined up as a pro and, and played at the highest level and. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised at all at uh, how successful he's been and, and the great job he's done. Uh, what were those years like for you, though, uh, uh, Richard? I mean, you went in, in uh, at Cornell, and I guess squash, the, the varsity game, was just starting to maybe take off a little bit because I remember in Canada, I was, I was leaving high school. I left high school in 87, and uh, there, were, there were sort of little pe- people were talking, oh, you should – look to the u.s you know the, the, you know some schools looking for squash players down there and i thought ah, whatever but you know i was a little bit uh you know those were early days i guess uh but i guess that right around your time things may have started to sort of click a little bit in terms of the, the varsity uh, squash yeah and- it was an interesting time you know my predecessor bill austin who's a wonderful wonderful man he had not had a good time there for reasons outside of squash um, and so the, the team had sort of dropped down a lot. Um, and so when I got there, I had a group of very nice people, but, you know, certainly they weren't in the mode of a seriously competitive uh, team. And so uh, I instigated a lot of um, the sort of professional training that I had done Um and did that competitive, your competitive nature as a player come out as well? I, I mean, yeah, well, the thing like is I could all of the players at that stage. And so um, that was useful. I and mean, obviously n- not in every situation do you go in where you can beat all of your players. A lot of the coaches are recruiting people a lot better than them, but I had only shortly come off the pro tour and I was still playing at a high level. Um, and so, and I also did all of the training with the players. Um, yeah. And it's one of my little stories is that year one, I took them out for a six mile run and only one of the um, guys beat me. Year two, I took them all out for the same six miles 
uh, run and only one of the guys didn't beat me. So okay. <laughs> it was a pretty big change. measure of, uh, of the change that you brought. Well, and, and me getting older, I suppose, as well. But, but yeah, but, um, you know, so I, I, I didn't really have any understanding of what I was supposed to do, but I sort of used my imagination and I was really lucky because the alumni were incredibly supportive. Um, and then I started going off up into Canada to see if I could find some people to recruit. I went out to, um, Happy hunting grounds back then. Yeah. Um, we, we, I didn't get all the people I wanted. I, I, uh, I recruited Peter Yick, but I didn't get him. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, the Yicks, uh, I know what, very well. Yeah. Um, and so I went off to Evergreen to, to see him. Um, and uh, there was a lad called Simon Bieber, who was a nice player. And uh, the Lelievres, uh, sorry, the Deliers came and visited okay. with me. Yeah. Um, but in the end, I, 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 I got a few not bad players. And, uh, you know, we, we had three years of really great team spirit. I started women's squash at Cornell that they'd never had varsity squash before. And I recruited very well for that. We, we managed to get the European champion. Um, your your wife, Pat role. took, uh, took on that role. Did she? Uh, she did. She did. Um, there were a few sort of murmurs that Milman was starting a breeding program because of the number of boyfriend, girlfriend situations that we had. <laughs> but uh, They were really, you know, I always say to people, when some of them arrived, you wanted to smack them around the skull because they were snotty-nosed little um, high school kids. And within two to three years, I was calling the same people for advice because I respected them so much and they were such vibrant human beings. It was a, an amazing transition evolution. Um, and the only reason that I moved on was because I was trying to compete against all of the other Ivy League schools who had wide courts and we didn't have wide courts right we raised the money for wide courts but then unfortunately the school wanted the same amount of money raised again to endow the courts and i had been approached by a, a wonderful man uh, eric fast um, to come and um, build a squash club with him down in westchester new york uh, near near him so that's why we that's moved right on. around the time when i first heard uh, your name was the, your westchester uh, days i think you got a little bit of publicity uh, uh, on the uh, squash talk.com back in the day that's right that's yeah. right but anyway that's that's all yeah. ancient history now and and uh, i'm delighted well, i guess you could say you laid the groundwork there at cornell didn't you a little bit well, you know, I, I hope that we had a, a positive effect. I'm, I'm certainly very flattered by um, the frequency with which I'm invited to go and, and do stuff with them. And, and I want to continue to be a supporter as much as I can in my small way. Uh, and both Pat and I have extremely fond memories of the teams. And in fact, we recently went back to quite an extraordinary reunion. It was uh, the reunion of the first ever women's squash team, which was my era, and the first ever men's squash team, which was 1959. Okay. So we had these 82 and 83-year-old guys with our women's team, who, by the way, now are these extraordinarily powerful women 
you know, one of them's just had her sixth baby and is running all kinds of programs in her local community. One of them's a senior lawyer. They're just, they've, all of them have become everything that I could see that they were going to become. Uh, and just, I, I'm f- floored by, by what incredible human beings they are. Well, let, let's just hope that that, uh, that type of what's going on with varsity squash continues. Uh, uh, we'll see how things play out over the next uh, little while. And, uh, but yeah, good times for you, uh, Richard. Yes, absolutely. Now, um, now I know uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about and talk to you about is uh, your, your eye mask is uh, now that, you know, uh, that's been around for a few years. Not it's, it's pre COVID, right? The, the eye mask, obviously. The eye mask was invented by a wonderful Australian squash coach by the name of Max Morehouse. He was one of the most respected uh, senior coach educators and coached hundreds of uh, young kids. And he just came up with the idea of developing eyewear that could not only protect from the ball, but to a degree protect from the racket because he was seeing so many injuries. Yeah. And when I was the coach of the United States um, team at the World Championships in 2001 in Melbourne, um, I had found out about eye mask about a year or so prior to that and started using it because the sunglass version just didn't work for me. It just like sweat poured down, it fogged up. And so I met um, Max and his wife June and we became distributors for North America in that year, 2001. Max unfortunately has since passed away. um, But it was, then taken on by the chap who was running the websites for Max, uh, a chap called Simon Stanbridge, who's now my um, uh, owner worldwide. He's my partner, and he runs the um, Southern Hemisphere, and I'm running the Northern Hemisphere. And this year, when all of my business as uh, the Millman experience evaporated, um, Obviously, people couldn't have me go and coach because of the pandemic. A former client of mine said to me, well, why don't you extend the eye mask to make it into PPE for COVID protection? So I talked to Simon, and we were a little uncertain about this. Um, But he uh, has the ability to use a CAD program, so he drew a template, and we designed... um, a larger full face shield purely for um, frontline worker protection. And a friend of mine who was a dentist found out about it and she told other dentists. And all of a sudden I was getting phone calls uh, from Saskatchewan and from Ontario, (laughs) from um, Massachusetts, from Texas, you know, I hear you've got a face shield that fits over dental loops. Please, can you send us some? And so this is a whole interesting new world. And then I heard from Sean Moxham um, uh, at his M-Squash program. And he said, we are going to take bold steps and we are going to make it mandatory for anybody coming into our squash program when squash reopens 
to wear a face shield and a mask. Um, and he he's ordered 150. Taking, he's taking the initiative there, then, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he ordered 150 of them. And so, you know, here is I not making any kind of living at all. And suddenly, you know, uh, David Palmer's former coach is running a fantastic program up there in Portchester, New York, orders 150. I was really excited. We packed them up, my wife and I, because we make them here in Atlanta. Um, we, we got uh, partnerships with local businesses who cut the plastic for us and make the uh, headbands and all this kind of stuff. And uh, David, uh, sorry, Sean received them. And about three days later, I got a phone call from his wife, Kathleen, which they're very nice, but they won't work. <laughs> and I went, oh, no. And I said, well, why won't they work? And Kathleen said, well, every time you reach up to play a backhand volley, because the visor comes down below your chin, yeah. it catches on your volley. So they packaged them up and sent them back. And meanwhile, I talked to Simon and we redesigned just for squash, a visor that just comes to the chin level. Right. Yeah. And well, you have um, sizes, right? You have the, the juniors, right. you have the, the PPE and then the squash. Yeah. And so then I sent them the 150 back to Kathleen. And if you look on my website, there's a, uh, there's a quote from Kathleen which is my favorite quote. She says, before the pandemic, I never wore eyewear. I came from Belgium. We didn't wear them as pros. But after the pandemic, I think I'm going to keep wearing these. They're so comfortable and they protect you from the whole, whole face. So it's just been um, a boon, I suppose. I, I guess um, Simon and I, get a little bit of credit, although it was more serendipitous than our being clever, to be honest. Um, but we designed these things and all of the club uh, program directors um, who have found out about it have ordered them. And I've just had wonderful feedback. People seem to really, really like it. Um, it's very, very lightweight. There's no distortion. It doesn't fog. Um, and so it's, it's for me personally, and I think for the people who have been trying to run squash programs in this difficult time, it has been a, a plus. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you just to sort of play devil's advocate, maybe just to give people some idea in terms of what the feel is like. Uh, and you mentioned it briefly that, so it's anti-fog and, uh, what, uh, and what about uh, in terms of uh, sweat and things like that? Uh, absolutely no issue at all. Um, you know, I've, I've worn it in 95 degrees outside ghosting and just didn't have any problems at all. Right. Um, the only time I've ever had it fog is if you're, in a, if you're in a vehicle that's got the air conditioning on and it's become cold with the air conditioning yeah. and you jump outside into a humid, a humid atmosphere, then condensation will uh, sort of uh, briefly uh, fog it until the temperature of the plastic comes up to the same level, and then it's right. no problem. That, that's my life but, here in the UAE. And every time I yeah. go outside, my glasses uh, fog up. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, we've really worked hard to try and uh, get the safety certifications um, internationally. And uh, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, we have the uh, ASNZS uh, 1337.1-2001, which is for droplet and spray uh, certifications. And then I, I recently had it tested uh, in Europe and it has been tested for uh, increased robustness and uh, also for droplet uh, spread. Well, but I also in a couple of you, you've cited several uh, studies, epidemiologists and other studies where uh, they've talked about the, the respiratory droplets in the six feet uh, inside. And that, that's kind of that danger zone that squash falls into because you can't play uh, squash at a distance as we talked about. Uh, but with the eye, with the eye mask on, uh, apparently according to these studies, uh, it's significantly, or maybe perhaps even totally, uh, uh prevents the spread of those uh, respiratory uh, droplets according to the, the studies that you've cited. Uh, yeah. Online. I think you could say significantly, mm. but of course I don't think you can ever say that you can totally stop stuff because you just don't know how circumstances yeah. people are going to use it. Um, I've been working with Dr. Ann Smith from the World Squash Federation, um, who's obviously doing her best. She's the World Squash Federation's uh, health advisor. Um, we've also been a bit concerned about um, the uh, aerosolization of the virus and one of the things that Anne, uh, Dr. Ann Smith said to me was, you know, it would be great if when somebody goes down for a drop shot and gets up again, um, that there's some kind of prevention from aerosolized droplets that are hanging in the air going down behind the visor. So I developed an aerosol screen, which fits over the top of the eye mask, which is an optional extra, but again, another um opportunity to help prevent and the most exciting development in the last couple of weeks because this stuff is happening very very quickly is that um, we've developed a reinforcement um, piece that goes between the visor and the headband mm -hmm. and these I don't know if you're aware but historically squash eyewear uh, to be World Squash Federation um, approved, had to pass a test called ASTM F803. And unless it passed that, it was not um, able to be approved by World Squash Federation. That testing system is now changing. And ASTM F803 will now only apply to baseball. And there is a brand new ASTM standard um, for all racket sports. And you're probably aware, um, you know, as an observer, how popular padel and pickleball and all these sports have become. Well, the new ASTM 3164 is going to apply to all racket sports, squash, racquetball, tennis, all these things. And so I'm really excited that currently, in fact, this week, um, our uh, squash 
uh, eye mask plus that comes down to the chin here is being tested. I think probably the first squash eyewear ever to be tested at ASTM 3164. So I'll let you know as soon as I get the final results, but we're, we're very excited about that. Yeah. I remember uh, back, I think it was in the late eighties where uh, at least in a few provinces across Canada, eye guards were mandatory. And, um, but the only time I'd ever been uh, up until now, anyways, uh, hit in the eye was that was when I was in juniors and I was playing in a senior event, but my eye guards broke. The guy hit his backswing was so vicious. Uh, they broke and kind of cut my, I had to go get stitches and then come back and finish. The, they forced me to come back and finish the match. But those eye guards, I don't think were, were tested because uh, they broke and, and kind of stuck into my, I was lucky I had them on though. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least they did the job of, you know, stopping your eye getting hit. Absolutely. But that's one of the things I think about the, um, the COVID version that we've produced that, you know, we didn't particularly think about, but has turned out to be a great bonus is that people feel really confident that they're not going to be hurt by a racket. And as you know, and you know, although a ball in the eye is a terrible thing, most of the eye injuries or facial injury, sorry, injuries that we've had in squash have been as a result of racket strike, not ball strike. Right. Yeah. You need, you need something on your, that you're wearing that's not going to break or not going to shatter. Uh, otherwise right. you're in deep trouble. Then. Yep. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, is there anything else uh, on the horizon with the eye mask? Cause uh, otherwise we, I want to move on to uh, 10, 10, 20 or well, the only, the only other thing on the horizon with the eye mask pertains to 10, 10, 20. Right. Yes. Yes. Also, before we go there though, I mean, uh, obviously uh, the PSA announced the return of, of pro squash uh, in mid September, I think in Manchester, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, the, the sports that have been successful getting back into the, the pro you know, professionally, uh, sport like uh, I think the closest one is actually uh, UFC fighting. I mean, these guys are on top of each other, right? And uh, I think it's probably obviously uh, much uh, more dangerous in terms of spread than squash would be. Uh, but they've somehow, I think, managed uh, with a lot of uh, deep pockets there to pull it off. And they've had many, many successful uh, events. But uh, I think the key is uh, this, uh, this bubble that they're, Yes. And uh, I think squad, I think that's because I spoke with Alex Goff uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on the podcast, and that's kind of what he's looking at uh, to have several sort of locations where players that are already there would, would compete uh, in those events. Now, uh, but I don't think Manchester is one of them because players, from, I think, across the world are going to be playing in it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but, so it's going to be interesting. Uh, to see how that play plays out, because I think I think the PSA is kind of they're being for you know being kind of bullied into getting back on court almost. Uh, well, it is a difficult situation for many of the reasons that we spoke of earlier in the podcast. Is you know the sport uh, is reliant on money, and you know it is really starving for money right now. And uh, the, the very existence of a professional game is dependent on money. Um, 
And uh, unless they get back playing, it's going to be hard to see, you know, how they're going to be able to financially survive. My one fear would be is if they had an outbreak that it could really set them back a long, long time. But if precautions are taken and, you know, people behave as if they were in a bubble, um, I, I think there's every chance, you know, cricket is doing it very, very effectively at the moment. Yeah. Um, England have just played uh, West Indies uh, on a three test series. Now they're playing Pakistan. Um, so, you know, uh, and that's a large group of people. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So it is. I, it's, it's definitely possible. I think that you have to make sure the protocols uh, are followed, the testing's done. And most important, those individuals involved cannot uh, break the rules because if they do, everybody is screwed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be, that'll be, I think, in the mid, I think mid-September in Manchester is what they're saying. Right. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's see how that plays out. Now, uh, World Squash Day, uh, as I said, uh, today's 8-10-20. And we're looking at 10, 10, 20. So it's two, uh, two months out. And um, Alan Thatcher is the, the man behind this. And you're working with him uh, pretty closely, as I know. So give us um, sort of a little bit of a – I know uh, World Squash Day came about after 9-11. Is that right? It was, uh, it was the brainchild of Alan Thatcher. Yeah. Um, and – you know, I've really enjoyed my uh, interactions with Alan uh, since I first started talking to him, and I, I've, I've written a number of articles for him. Um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, sort of seem overly biased here, but to me, he has the most balanced um, viewpoint of the game. Um, you know, I get very enthusiastic and passionate about my beliefs, um, which are sometimes I think uh, perhaps a little extreme. And he hears these things from all kinds of people. But the, the path he plots, I think, is almost consistently the most sensible and, um, you know, sort of secure path for the game of squash. And that's what he has in mind the whole time. He is talking to a lot of people at the moment uh, in Australia, in Canada, myself, in the UK, uh, about bringing the sport outside, um, about finding less expensive ways of building the game. You know, we're talking about can we find a way of um, you know, playing the game with facilities that are instead of, you know, 200, 300,000, 10 and $20,000. Right. What can we do to, you know, sort of grow a, a future where it's possible for everybody to play equally? He has been very vocal in his support of frontline workers uh, during the pandemic and so what we're trying to do is bring all of those strands together. And we, we are producing a um, World Squash Day um, Eye Mask Plus. Um, and what we're going to do is 
The iMask Plus World Squash Day version will be available for purchase. And then each time somebody purchases one of those, we're going to send, donate one, a similar one, to uh, frontline workers, hospitals, etc. So that's the first thing. So that people um, that buy those uh, World Squash Day uh, face shields, they will be contributing to PPE for um, uh, frontline workers around the world in, in various locations. Um, we're also finalizing, we haven't quite finalized it yet, a competition. And the competition will be if you play squash outdoors in an unusual situation in your World Squash Day face shield and send the photograph to Alan Thatcher, who will put it on the World Squash Day page, um, whichever photograph gets the most likes by the closing date. So you can call all your friends and, and uh, get them to put as many likes up as you like on your, uh, on your photo. Yeah. Uh, but what we're looking for is, you know, whether it's uh, Victor Cruon playing squash on the Eiffel Tower or somebody playing in front of the pyramids or somebody playing, you know, on an ice rink or wherever. Out, outdoors is what we're looking for. And each month, or, or, sorry, each week. Well, that, that, that's more or less the theme of this year's World Squash Days, uh, uh, initiating the Outdoor Squash Initiative. Initiating the Outdoor Squash Initiative and supporting our frontline heroes. Yes. Okay. All right. And um, for people who want to get involved, I guess I can just go to and maybe sort of connect with Alan or connect with you. They can just go to the uh, World Squash Day dot net. I think is a dot net dot net website. Is that right? Yeah. Or go to squashmad.com. Squashmad. Yes. Yes. So any of that. And we just hope that a lot of people will have some fun, play mm -hmm. some rallies against brick walls or monuments, or I don't want to get anybody into trouble, or, but, uh, you know, <laughs> play all over the world and, you know, get your friends to uh, like your photograph on the World Squash Day Facebook page and uh, you will win um, uh, a large donation uh, for um, the hospital of your choice, I believe, is what we're going to do. All right. And, um, yeah, I'll probably try to reach out to, uh, to Alan maybe uh, a few weeks before WSD just to get uh, a final push uh, for that as well. But uh, I did notice uh, that the PSA, like Squash TV, is getting involved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think I read that somewhere. Uh, are you aware of that, uh? I wasn't aware of that, but it doesn't surprise me because as I said to you before, I believe that Alan Thatcher really feels the pulse of squash and represents the pulse of squash in a way that almost nobody else does. Well, he does a great job with the Canary Wharf, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of the most popular events there on the, on the tour at the moment. But he, equally, he's working very hard for what I would call racquetball squash. Uh, which is called UK Racquetball in the yeah. UK and the World Squash Federation have called it Squash 57. Squash 57. But, Nick so, Taylor is a big proponent of that one. Yeah, and, and, and I just think it's a wonderful sport for both uh, introducing people to the game 
because the entree level is is not a very high skill level, but then it also is a really great athletic game, perhaps the only sport, racket sport that makes you fit um, because the rallies go on such a long time. And you and I can't get fit playing squash anymore. We have to get fit to play squash, yes. whereas racquetball squash, you can get fit playing it. And then I think so many times we've lost great characters and, and uh, participants to the golf course because they felt their hips and knees couldn't cope with squash anymore. Racquetball squash, you can continue playing maybe two times a week squash, two times a week racquetball squash, and you're not going to be wearing out those joints and you're still going to be getting a great workout. Yeah, Nick uh, came on when I spoke to him, and he was talking about how he did his tra- his training for the, I guess, the last World Masters he played in and, and won. And he said didn't play in a real game of squash uh, for like a month leading up to that event. And then the week before, he played a little bit, but all he played was uh, racquetball squash leading up to yeah, that. And I think it's a wonderful sport. It, it really is a lot of fun. And I also think it's a sport that we will be able to play outside um, against walls, against nets, you know, even over nets. And, and I, I'm putting a big effort into developing versions of that which will be accessible to everybody. Right on. Well, R- Richard, uh, I mean, you did, you did mention the Millman experience earlier. I was going to end uh, on uh, asking you uh, what, what's on the horizon for the Millman experience. Anything, uh, any new uh, outdoor uh, sort of motivational training videos coming up? Or uh, um, you know, I could really- put one together for you. I just did my circuit training here in the living room. Uh, <laughs> it's about now. Um, you know, the, the, uh, at the moment, the, the uh, eye mask plus face shields are really taking up all of my time. Um, you know, of course my passion is the people of squash and the sport. Um, but you know, this last week I just put together an order of 500, uh, eye mask plus face shields for the university of Maryland at Baltimore dental school. Um, and these sort of orders are really time consuming for my wife and I, what I'm really excited about is the possibility of us squash and college squash um coming back on the live stream soon um i, I don't know if people well, that's know a big one for you because you're 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 the uh, the al michaels of uh, of college squash commentary scene aren't you you're, you're one of the you do this you do a bit of a uh, uh, commentary on that. Well, that's right. With, along with, with my, I call her my partner in crime, Chanel Erasmus. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if people know that ESPN has been carrying intercollegiate matches on the live stream on ESPN Plus hmm. for quite some time, but we haven't had any commentary. And so actually David Palmer has been very generous in, in voicing his support uh, and would like us to come and commentate on That's some of That's got to be something. Yeah, you, I mean, we should tap into that right right away. I mean. I, I believe so. You, you and then, have people lining up to do, some, to, to do that commentary. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that there are, again, as I said to you earlier, the pandemic, I think, is going to produce opportunities to pivot. I know that's an overused word, but 
to, to, to change our sport as we know it and evolve and face the future with adaptations which will benefit us. You know, Kim Clearkin, who's vice president at US Squash, she really, really wants to see much more live stream coverage. She wants to get a national league going in the United States. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about overdue. right. Yeah. And yeah. you know, if we can do TV coverage of national league matches and again, the national league type of situation lends itself to bubbles. Right. You can get four teams together well, yeah, over the course of a long into the mix as well. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. North America, if you like. Toronto, Boston, New York, Philly, uh, you got the right. hotbeds of squash. Get that league going. I, I'm, I've been preaching that for, for a while now. We're preaching to the choir here. Um, and, <laughs> you know, U.S. squash would like to get those sort of events uh, commentated on. And, and I, I believe that there's a lot of material for Chanel and I to really get to grips with once we get to the point when there is any kind of travel available. Um, you know, I was just pondering yesterday, funnily enough, when I was thinking about talking to you, um, how valuable it would be to get uh, Chanel and myself to go uh, and interview all of the college coaches since I really truly believe that the engine of world squash is U.S. college squash. That's what really drives the thing. Yeah. We should really, you know, get a historical perspective, not just from current coaches, but past coaches, past There's players. So many legends out there coaching now anyways. I mean, right. it's amazing. And, and all, the, all the, the old former world number ones you've got. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the recently published uh, book about the life of Anil Nair by his wife called Lucky? No, I haven't. No. Oh, it's a fantastic book. And, and Anil Nair was maybe, with all due respect to Ritwick, uh, but I always mispronounce his name, uh, Bhattacharya and uh, Saurav Gosal, he maybe was the greatest Indian player of all time. And he you know, showed up as a little... Yeah, Ron Beck uh, talked about him on, when I had him on uh, a while right. back. I, think, uh, uh, I, I, do rec I do remember him mentioning him. Uh, and they might have been connected in some way. I uh, could be wrong. Well, look it up on Amazon. It's yeah. called Lucky. Lucky. It, it, okay. It's the story of Anil Nair um, and, and, you know, marvelous story. But, you know, there's a lot of this material that Chanel and I could, um, you know, interview and bring together to give, give more of a perspective of not just the fact that there is this collegiate game of squash here in the United States, but how many different countries and how many different extraordinary individuals have both come here and then gone back to their original countries or to new countries even, and done something for the sport because of the generation of enthusiasm they experienced here. Yeah, not only that, as well as the, the education that they, they were able to get and, and brought that back uh, in and benefited their country through that, that as well. Exactly. Yeah. And listen, before we go, I just want yeah, to sure. say, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure lots of people have said this to you, but I really appreciate what you do, Jerry. It, it just, it's unique. It's unusual. Um, 
it ties our community together in a way that almost nobody else does. And the fact that you put time and effort into this continually for so long, I just want to let you know how much I personally, and I'm sure many people appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate the kind words. It's a, it's a passion project. I love this just like we all love squash. That's why I got into it. And uh, I really appreciate the, the words and appreciate your time. Uh, Richard, you're, you're a great guy to have on because you've been there, done that, and you're still doing it. So uh, hopefully uh, we can do it again. Absolutely. As Winston Churchill said, just keep on buggering on. Well, that's episode 158 in the books. Many thanks to Richard Millman uh, for that. Lots of food for thought there. And just want to wish him and his wife, Pat, all the best uh, going forward uh, in terms of uh, the Millman experience and in terms of uh, getting through this uh, really challenging period right now. So all the best to Richard and many thanks uh, to him. And hopefully we get him back on again. And we're going to be talking about Richard, uh, no doubt, in the weeks and months to come as we as World Squash Day uh, fast approaches uh, 10, 10, 20 is the date on that one so keep that mark that down in your calendar and try to find ways of uh, getting involved in world squash day uh, at your club and in your squash community now uh, coming up next on the on this podcast on episode 159 fantastic episode just finished with james flynn standout at the university of pennsylvania and squash canada had a fantastic season last year and we talk about uh, all of that on the podcast and also really interesting how he views uh maybe taking on a professional uh, squash career and the the things that he has to consider before he makes that decision and uh, right now obviously uh, making that decision is a lot tougher given the circumstances so we discuss all of that and much more a really fun chat with James smart guy intelligent uh, fella and he's got uh, you know he's got a good thing going there at the University of Pennsylvania under Gilly Lane and um, you know uh, really enjoyed chatting with him so that's coming up on episode 159 and we've got several more upcoming so stay tuned for those please uh, share the podcast with your friends in your squash community. Uh, give us a like, give us a comment, uh, review, whatever uh, you can do to help spread the word of In Squash. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and uh, new, uh, newly on Instagram. I guess I've been on there for a few months now. But please uh, share uh, the podcast. Give us the like, a tweet, or whatever uh, you can do to share it on your social platform. And, um, yeah, and just in terms of my squash, last week I played three, four times uh, last week. Uh, it's the most I've played in quite a while. Felt really good, although after the fourth uh, my fourth match uh, of the week, I was quite sore. I, I have a bit of a hip issue and probably due to get some sort of hip replacement at some point down the road. But uh, right now, feeling great and looking forward to getting back on the court. And before uh, I forget, also, um, just in terms of the podcast sharing and, and, uh, and whatnot, uh, the podcast, if you don't mind, uh, uh, anyone who wants to donate to the podcast, there's a PayPal donation link on the SoundCloud website. And uh, feel free to drop a few coins in there if you uh, if you so, so desire. Now, uh, again, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, all the best with your squash. All the best to you and your families. And uh, keep up the good fight here under the circumstances. Looking forward to more great podcasts for you. So stay tuned for those. Take care and have a great day. Goodbye now.